But these officers continue to have a badge. They continue to have their weapons and they continue to be a danger to the community. For some workers, all it takes is one Karen who wants to speak to the manager for them to get fired. For Derek Chauvin, the police officer who kneeled on George Floyd's neck, his 18 prior complaints led to a whopping two letters of reprimand. If police were held accountable for their misconduct, would George Floyd have seen a better fate? We're Prishan Sameda, your host of the Quiet Truth Podcast. It was 1975 when three African-American men were wrongfully convicted of murder. For the next 39 years, they lost the majority of their lives in prison for something they didn't do, until they were finally released in 2014. Just this May, 45 years after they were convicted, a criminal defense and civil rights lawyer helped demand justice and ended up winning an $18 million settlement for the three men, the largest in Ohio's history. Here we have with us today, Mr. Terry Gilbert of the Friedman and Gilbert Law Firm. Hi, Mr. Gilbert. Thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Mr. Gilbert has been practicing law since 1973. And in that time, he's demanded and secured justice for countless Americans, many of them victims of police brutality. Protesters all over America have been trying to get out one message. This isn't just about George Floyd. This is about the fact that 1,098 Americans died at the hands of the police in 2019. Of these people, 24% of them were Black, despite the Black community only making up about 13% of the population. In fact, as many say, this was the tip of the iceberg. When you first started practicing law in 1973, if someone told you that in 2020, a black man would be choked to death by a police officer, would you have believed it? Yes, because it's been going on for a long, long time, even before I started practicing law. Even worse, actually, because uh, there, were, there was very little training and control over police. And in some respects, in the you know, from the late 60s and early 70s, racism in major uh, urban areas, even around the country, was pretty awful and the police could do no wrong. The idea that police could do no wrong didn't go away after the 60s and 70s. Up to this day, something called qualified immunity protects officers in court. Judges in the Supreme Court have allowed a concept called qualified immunity, I'm getting a little technical here, meaning that police uh, have a way of being immune from these suits uh, if they can show that there is some sort of good faith. And judges have thrown cases out, really horrible cases, from the standpoint of what, what the police did because of this doctrine. Qualified immunity is a legal doctrine which protects government officials, namely police officers, from getting sued for trivial matters. However, more often than not, police officers murdering unarmed people gets passed off as just doing their job. For one, Eric Garner was a black man who tragically died after ex-police officer Daniel Pantaleo put him in a chokehold. 
A precedent to George Floyd, some of his last words were, I can't breathe. Yet, after being captured on video choking a man to death for suspicion of a nonviolent crime, Pantaleo was never criminally charged, even after the death was ruled a homicide. He was fired, but only five years after Eric Garner died. I can't even imagine the trauma the Garner family went through, and not only was Eric Garner killed, but the one who killed him was walking free. After hearing that, it's hard to imagine, but in normal situations, it's the job of the police officer to protect Americans. So then, whose job is it to protect the police officer? The police union. Except sometimes, they do too good of a job. They are unions like any other union, but uh, they have a grip on uh, the cities. Uh, because of the contracts that they uh, enter into uh, in terms of how to handle disciplinary proceedings with police. Uh, they have uh, grievances, they have arbitration, uh, they can go to court to, to, to fight against terminations of discipline. A couple of years ago, a study in Philadelphia was done on 26 cases of police officers who were fired, of charges ranging from retail theft and on-duty intoxication to domestic violence and excessive force. A stunning 19 of these officers were rehired. How? These officers got their jobs back through something called arbitration. Essentially, the police union has a contract with the city that gives police officers the right to appeal disciplinary action through a process called arbitration. This arbitration panel has a representative from the city, from the police station, and a neutral arbitrator. That seems like the fair, unbiased process it's supposed to be, right? But if the neutral arbitrator starts agreeing with the city on the discipline, police unions will stop asking for an arbitration panel, and therefore arbitrators will lose that source of income. Of course, this doesn't mean that every neutral arbitrator votes in favor of brutal police officers. But as the Pittsburgh City Paper publishes, in cases where police terminations were appealed by the police union through arbitration, police officers got their jobs back almost 70% of the time. These cases included an officer charged with slapping his ex-girlfriend hard enough to dislocate her jaw, and another who, while off-duty and drunk, accidentally shot an innocent 20-year-old man, and yet one more charged with insurance fraud and theft by deception. Most police officers are cleared in the, in the original investigation, and those who somehow are charged, most of them are acquitted, and many who are disciplined get their jobs back. And that's been the general problem we've seen for a long, long time about police accountability. Along with this, many times when police officers are faced with criminal charges, they opt for a judge instead of a jury. Cops get charged and they get acquitted because they will have their cases before a judge instead of a jury. They don't want to face a jury of their peers because the jurors will not be uh, tolerate that kind of behavior. But judges who have to be elected, some of them, 
some states, like in Ohio, our judges are elected. They may get contributions from the police union, and these police are in their courtroom every day, so they may find a technicality or some reason to uh, get them out of it or find them guilty of some minor charge. Not only does the police union protect officers' jobs when they shouldn't, but they're also not actively doing anything to stop the toxic culture of not snitching on fellow officers. Going back to the case of the three wrongfully convicted men, one of the keys to the victory in this settlement was getting detectives from that 1975 case to break the code of silence and tell the true story. But what is the code of silence? This really entrenched um, culture of not exposing one another. And that is a huge problem in the system because no, I've never heard of, maybe I've heard of a one or two times where a police officer was willing to testify against another police officer. If they see something that is uh, a violation of somebody's rights, they just ignore it. They don't say anything because if they do say something, their uh, role in the police department will be compromised in terms of you know, working with other police. The word gets around, no one wants to be associated. Other police may not cover their back if they're in danger. Basically, no snitching. Sure, the code of silence can be considered human nature. Just like you'd hesitate to rat out your own family, the police consider the code a contract of trust. But when police officers feel obligated not to testify against their colleague, a case of excessive force may never get reported or charged. In late 2014, three Chicago police officers were involved with the shooting of a 16-year-old Laquan McDonald. In an effort to clear ex-officer Jason Van Dyke's name, two other police officers covered for him in court. This included the shooing away of eyewitnesses and making up a story that rationalizes the murder of McDonald, although there was dashcam footage that opposed this made-up story. The story of Laquan McDonald stands with many others that we will never know about, as police officers lie on stand and fellow colleagues are expected to help them with it. It doesn't stop there. Oftentimes, police will cover up cases of misconduct by labeling the underlying cause of the murder a medical incident. One story that was exposed is that of George Floyd himself. The day after he was choked by Chauvin, the police released a statement titled, Man Dies After Medical Incident During Police Interaction. Every time a cover-up, like the murder of Laquan McDonald, gets exposed, or a brutal murder like that of George Floyd becomes public, Americans arrive at the question of how officers earn that much power in the first place. How long does it take for the country to trust me with a gun, a badge, and the responsibility of using them? Apparently less time than it takes for a barber to be trusted with a pair of shears in some states like North Carolina. The first step we can take as a country while we push for more intense reforms is requiring more than six months of training for a blue vest. America should follow in the steps of Germany. They require two years of training before they're considered officers. The result of this extra training is clear. 
The rate of civilians killed by the police per 10 million people in Germany is 1.3, a far cry from America's 33.5. The concept of defunding the police went from something I'd never heard of to a common chance within a matter of weeks. No one is saying get rid of law enforcement, but people are saying redesign it to meet the needs of the communities. Um, a lot of the uh, calls that police get don't need to be handled by police. Could be a mental health issue, could be a domestic issue, could be, um, some other social situation, which doesn't need brute force. One of the first things I thought of when I heard of defund the police is where would we take the money away from? Well, nowadays, police officers are a common sight in schools. But the fact that Black students make up 31% of school-related arrests, despite only making up 16% of public school enrollment, points to the disproportionate law enforcement on people, no, kids of color. These arrests are only paving a path to juvie as students get involved with the criminal justice system and the discrimination behind it before they can even drive. By defunding the police, we'll be ending the school-to-prison pipeline. And by taking away money from the police and redistributing it to recovery centers, we could finally end the war on drugs, which was started by President Nixon and has terrorized the Black community disproportionately to their white counterparts. We would help drug addicts recover instead of locking them up. A lot of the functions of police could be reduced and they could concentrate on the more serious crimes and uh, the funding could open the door to more community-based policing, more community programs. Before we jump to conclusions and connect this idea with the radical left, we must realize that defund the police does not mean disband the police. It's simply saying that we need to relocate the massive public funding that goes to the police towards more public service, restorative, and preventative programs. The New York Police Department's operating budget in 2019 was more than the operating budgets of homeless services, housing preservation and development, youth and community development, health and hospitals, and parks and recreation combined, according to the New York City Council. You can't take a bad system sometimes and overhaul it. Sometimes you got to start from scratch. The phrase eight can't wait has made its way around Instagram by now. What it's referring to is the eight policies for police that would prevent misconduct. Requiring officers to intervene if their colleague is using excessive force, requiring a report of all uses of force against civilians, and banning the use of chokeholds and strongholds are a couple of the most obvious policies. Note that both New York City, where Eric Garner was choked to death, and Minneapolis, where George Floyd suffered the same fate, didn't have a ban on chokeholds. After days of protests, the city finally implemented the ban once and for all. The Youth of Force Project conveniently put together a chart of the 100 biggest police departments 
including Columbus, and which of these eight policies they have in place. They also looked at the connection between the number of the policies a police department has and their rate of police misconduct. San Francisco is our model city here. It implemented all eight policies in 2016 and saw a 30% decline in use of force since then. And departments with at least four of these policies have had a police killing rate that's around two thirds of the rate of the departments with zero to one policies. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, along with other Democratic senators, is pushing for a new bill that would tear up the structure of police brutality, kind of like she tore up Trump's speech. It's the first time that I've seen a comprehensive bill that really provides a roadmap for eliminating or reducing police violence and making sure that officers who are hired are well-educated and, and mentally and physically fit, that they would have to comply with standards, they would be, the disciplinary system would be better. They've changed the definition of what is excessive force because the law before, or the current law, is basically, you know, whatever is reasonable. And, Reasonable is an ambiguous term. This bill would include banning chokeholds, requiring officers to wear body cameras, as well as keeping a national database to record police misconduct and to help keep police accountable for their actions. And after the tragic and preventable death of Breonna Taylor, a promising medical responder, it would ban no-knock warrants on drug cases, which would have saved Breonna. And if it was people that were out there, you wouldn't have even seen this bill even be proposed, especially during a time when we're dealing with another crisis, the pandemic, to get a sweeping reform bill for police misconduct. That's something I never would have dreamed of. So I don't know what it, the chances are of that bill getting passed, but um, we need to continue the pressure against our local governments and national, federal government. So what's your role here? A. Sign every justice-demanding petition that you can, including the ones in the description of this podcast. B. Donate to the organizations we listed in the description of this podcast. C. Send emails or call people in power who are not endorsing change. Yep, you guessed it. Info in the description. D, educate yourself as well as family and friends about Black Lives Matter, especially the conservative aunt you strongly dislike, with the resources in the description. E, attend protests if possible. Prisha and I are suffering from extreme FOMO since we can't go. F, do nothing because you're just a 7th grader in the middle of Wyoming, which basically isn't a state. If you guess F, then please head to your nearest doctor. Thanks. I think people have to come to grips with their own personal quiet truth about what kind of a society they want to want to live in. People have to confront their own biases, you know, and make a decision. Am I only going to think about myself? Because life is not worth living when you live in a country where, you know, a significant part of the 
of the population are treated like second-class citizens. I mean, it pains me to know that I was fighting against this uh, since I was, you know, 22 years old. And 50 years later, I'm still dealing with this. Don't let your grandkids hear the same story from you. Now is the time to change the ending.